Um, a couple of people have, have uh, sent us emails, and we had a handful, actually, of emails this week regarding what uh, they were learning through Eat This Book, how it was going in their life. Uh, one person says, God is showing me how his ways are right and true. He's showing me that with him, the challenges in my life are easier. I'm doing the full meal deal plan and have discovered the Old Testament is a little overwhelming, but it shows me he's with me when I honor him. Certainly, I have much more reverence and awe of the Lord the more I see the whole picture. Uh, a tip, they said that I read the Psalms, and for the other readings, I have an app on my phone, and it reads it to me, so I can hear how the names and the words are pronounced. See, you figure out all those names, that'll do it for you. Uh, also, I read two to three days at a time. Another person, and I heard this one multiple times, but they said, my wife and I are both eating this book. An incredible benefit that I have not anticipated is that since we are following the schedule and are reading the same things, we often end up in conversation about what we're reading. We swap questions and insight. Eat This Book has given my wife and I some excellent conversation and has built our marriage. Yeah, so uh, Eat This Book has many advantages. Now, again, you're in somewhere today you should be in, in Ezra, Nehemiah, but let's... Do a little review real quick. So if you have your Bibles, open up to the table of contents. The table of contents. And if you come, you see first book, Genesis. Now, we see Genesis when it begins. We've got God and mankind in the Garden of Eden. Now, we believe the Garden of Eden is a historical place, but it also represents the presence of God, being in the presence of God, life the way it's supposed to work. And God says, for this to, to go on, what, what's going to happen is you have to keep in mind that I'm the creator and you're the creature. And man said, I don't think so, and decided to be in charge of his own life. He ended up getting kicked out of the garden, basically kicked out of the presence of God. Life was no longer going the way it was supposed to. The wheels began to come off. One thing after another, it just kept spiraling down. First 11 chapters of Genesis, we see life going from worse to worse, war, pride, anger, hate, all kinds of terrible, terrible things. You get to the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, and, and the world is a mess. Chapter 12, God comes to a guy named Abram and says, through you, I'm going to fix the world. The whole world's going to be changed. I'm going to give you a piece of real estate, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and, and the whole world will be blessed through you. And so we see, right here, er, this is where... Abram was. Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abram. Abraham did not call out to God. God comes to Abram. This was God's initiative. And so it says, let's go. So Abram takes off and goes around right down here, which is that piece of real estate, modern day Israel. That's where he goes. He has a boy, Isaac. God comes to Isaac, says the same promises. Isaac has a boy, Jacob. God comes to Jacob, says the same promises. At that time, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. He has, Jacob, Israel, has 12 boys. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, one of the boys goes down to Egypt. And he's hanging out down there. He gains some, some clout. He gains some power. Well, famine hits the land. And so he comes back and gets all of his family, only 70 Jewish people in the whole world at that point, and brings them down to Egypt. And they hang out there. Book of Genesis ends. The, the Jews are in Egypt living like kings. 
You open up the book of Exodus, next book, 400 years later. They're not like kings, right? They've multiplied like rabbits. They, they, the pharaohs in charge see this. There's two million strong, and they're saying, my goodness, we should be afraid. And so they enslave these guys. Moses, God taps Moses on the shoulder and says, I want you to go get them. And so Moses, 10 plagues, you know that, takes them out. It's supposed to take them up to the promised land, right? That's where they're supposed to be going. And they're on their way, but God says, let's make a detour and come down to Mount Sinai first. Now, Mount Sinai, it's nothing here but a big old desert, and so there was no one for them to run into, no one for them to cause problems with. No, It, it was a great place to be, except for God, who was hanging out at Mount Sinai at the time. Gives them the Ten Commandments, gives them government, gives them holidays, gives them a way of doing life. So at the end of... After, that's Exodus. Then Leviticus, he gives them uh, a sacrificial system. We, basically what he's saying is, I wanted to be with you in the garden. We were together. But since then, sin has entered the picture. I can't be with you. But now God comes up with a plan, the temple, tabernacle, and a sacrificial system. For me to be with you, sin must be atoned for. So we've got a way to do that now so God can be with his people. They leave, book of Numbers, they head up towards Canaan. Remember this? And they send some spies into the land. The spies come back, talk to the people, spread a bad report. The people say, we're scared about the folk in there. We'd rather die than go in there. God says, this can be arranged. And so God takes the people down into the desert. They hang out there 40 years, and that generation dies. End of Numbers, they go back along the east side of the Jordan. They weren't looking for any trouble, but they got some all the same. There were some people who were living there that when two million people started marching through and they heard what they did in Egypt, battle ensued and Israel won. That's the book of Numbers. Right there, whole book of Deuteronomy right there, because east side of Jordan, Moses in Deuteronomy says, okay, y'all, you're ready to cross the Jordan and get in the promised land. I'm just telling you, you're going to come across some challenges. Stay true to God, because if you stay true to God and his word, blessing. If you don't, it's going to be a bad scene. Well, that's that's. There we are. All right. Joshua, next slide. The book of Joshua, they take over the land, right? First 12 chapters are exciting, lots of war stuff. But the second 12 chapters, what they do is is kind of not so exciting stuff. They divvy up the land. Joshua says, okay, you know the 12 tribes? Everybody from the tribe of Asher, if your last name is Asher, okay, you guys are going to live up here. Anybody from the Benjamin, Benjamites, okay, you guys are going to live right over here. And they, they divvy the land up. That's Joshua. Then you get into Judges. Judges is a rough book, isn't it? It's an exciting reading, but it is a dark, dark book. Judges is like the overprotected kid who goes far away to college and just lets loose. You know, I mean, it is just everything's going on in Judges. God raises up military leaders for his people, each one worse than the one before. You get to the end of Judges, and there's horrific, uh, gross, gross immorality and and, uh, idolatry. It's just... The, the Israelites, God's people, are no different than the Canaanites. There's a verse, though, at the end of Judges, very significant verse. It says, but in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the last verse for a reason. It's kind of letting us know that part of their problem is they need a, a leader to keep them together, keep them on track. Now, very next book, Ruth, we see this. Very first verse of Ruth In the days when the judges ruled, 
And it's letting us know that even though it's a dark time, this is Israel's dark ages, God's still moving. God's still working. And so what God does in the book of Ruth, it's exciting to read. It's only four chapters. Next slide. Is God has to leave Israel, basically, and come down to Moab to find a heart that loves him, a heart that's genuine and pure, and he finds it in a girl named Ruth. She comes back through providential stuff, and she meets a guy, it's kind of a love story book, whose heart is right. But, but the, the key part of Ruth, don't get lost in the, the love story stuff, the key part of Ruth, last few verses where it ends up saying that Ruth and her new hubby, Boaz, they became the, 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 they had a kid named Obed who became the father of Jesse, who became the father of King David. And what Ruth is letting us know, just like the end of, end of Judges, they need a king, God is raising one up for them. But in 1 Samuel, what happens is 1 Samuel, the people say, we want a king now. And Samuel says, no, 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 not now. And they say, yes, now. And so God says, okay. So he gives them, he gives us what we want sometimes, doesn't he? And that's not always the best. He gives them Saul. Saul put, pulled the country together, but he was not a real guy, good guy. He reigned 40 years. End of 1 Samuel, basically 2 Samuel, you get King David. Now, King David, these are the golden years of, of Israel. King David pushes the borders out. King, King David uh, uh, determines and sets and, and establishes his reign, not just in Israel, whole Middle East. Egypt did not rule this point. Israel did. Babylon did not. Assyria did not. Israel was the feared country. And then David dies, King Solomon's on the throne, things couldn't be better. This is the really golden age. Remember, Queen of Sheba comes to check it out because it's so phenomenal. This is like heaven on earth. And the people are saying, the Abrahamic covenant is all fulfilled. That's right. This is set. This is heaven on earth. We're there. But, end of First, first Kings 10, what happens? First Kings 11, there's a civil war. Solomon dies, and when he dies, there's a civil war. And you got North Israel, and you got South Israel. Like North Korea, South Korea, North Vietnam, South Korea, they're, they're split. And this, by the way, if you're politically into the news, this is the Gaza Strip. This is a uh, uh, Philistine area at this point. And so there's this division. 20 kings ruled up here. They were all bad kings. 20 kings ruled down here. Half were, were, were okay. Half were, were bad kings. But this is why. Because Jerusalem, where the temple was, where the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, well, that's in the south, right? That's like right here. And the north didn't want to send their people to the south, so they invented their own religion. 722, the Assyrians, we don't see them on the map, they come through and they decimate the, the, the north. They stomp on the, the northern capital, which is Samaria. It's like the north's Washington, D.C. So if you're reading this in Second Kings, you read that, that uh, Samaria, Samaria, it's the capital of the north, wiped out. Uh, all the people taken captive. Then in 605, 597, 586, three, three times, Babylon, who is now in charge, they come through and they wipe out the south. And they go to Jerusalem. Which is, and what they do when they get to Jerusalem is they, they take the wall around the city and they turn it into rubble. They burn uh, the, the palace, all the, all the main buildings. They take the, the, the temple and they completely raise the temple. They steal all the holy furniture. They take it back to Babylon. They take all the people back. And so at this point, the, the Jerusalem, holy city, capital of God, is just a wasteland. 
There's no, there's no temple, which was where the only place was their salvation in the Jews. Now that's gone. The wall around the holy city, that's destroyed. All the main buildings are trash. It's just a, it's just a, a, a burned out, destroyed, blown up ghetto type place. That's the capital. And all the people are now in Babylon thinking, what have we done? What we, we, we've, we failed God so much, we can't, we can't go back, we, we, we lose. Well, 70 years later, Persia, they beat up Babylon, who had beat up Assyria. Persia is now the main, you see, this is the Persian Empire. And Persian Empire, they went down, they got Egypt, they even went over into... Am I on here? Yeah, something I said. Alexander was not going to be happy that they went into Greece. This was going to cause trouble down the road. But, but Persia's philosophy was a whole lot different than Assyria and Babylon that would rule through, through anger and hate and fear and trepidation and inhumane treatment. Persia said, no, 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 we're not going to do it that way. How about we be nice? And so uh, what Persia does is they send all these exiled Jews, whoever wants to go back, back to Jerusalem. We, we see the, the text. Next slide. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Here's the proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among all of his people, may his God be with him, let them go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, you've got you to gotta know that at one point, historically, this was challenged radically. You know, we know that Cyrus, a Persian, was not into Judaism, he was Zoroastrianism sort of thing. He was not into, what do you mean that's his God and build a house? This is bogus. That's what the belief was until the Cyrus Cylinder was found. The Cyrus Cylinder is held today in British Museum. It is Cyrus's decree to let Israel go back and rebuild their, their temple. Matter of fact, what Cyrus decreed is that all of these conquered people that he inherited from Assyria and Babylon, all of them could go back. And whoever their god was, Cyrus was claiming all of the gods. And he was doing this because he thought, you know what, if we can have these people go back and build their, their god's temple, all of those gods will be happy with me. And so he was claiming them all. And so you need to know, there has never been an archaeological find that has disproven scripture just the other way around. Every archaeological find has demonstrated, yeah, I guess is what it said here is correct. And so Cyrus gives this decree, whoever wants to go back can go back. 70,000 people go back. That's actually a remnant. That's a small portion of all the Jews that are in exile. We'll talk about that next week. But uh, 70,000 go back to rebuild temple, wall around Jerusalem, there is the books of Ezra, Nehemiah. That's where we're at in this, this history. Ezra, Nehemiah, great books. I love Ezra, Nehemiah. We call these books, though, the twins. Okay, now this is why we call them the twins, because these books are very similar. In a sense, they're like almost identical, almost. Ezra 1 through 6 deals with A. Nehemiah 1 through 6 deals with same sort of thing. A. Ezra 7 through 10 deals with B. Nehemiah 7 through 13. Nehemiah's a little bit taller than this one, brother. Deals with B. It's the same sort of thing. 
Now the A part is the building, the physical building. And it's what we think of when we think of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah, they rebuilt the wall around the city. It's the rebuilding part. We think of Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt. But you got, got to get this, this is real important because we miss this. We, 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 we know about that first part, the A, but we forget about the B. And the whole purpose of the books is the B. The only reason there is a building, the whole, the whole purpose of the temple and the wall and the security it gives and the organization of the priests and all this stuff is the B part. That's, that's the only reason why it exists. A, we might say, is the building externally. B is the building internally. I think a lot of Christians and a lot of Christianity is lived in Ezra 1 through 6. It's lived in the A part. You know, my, my faith, my Christianity is all about building man it's 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 the programs and it's the ministry and it's the activity and it's the meetings and i go and i go and i go and that's what it i go to church and i go to this meeting and i go to that meeting and i do this and i got this program and it's on my schedule and i'm serving over here i'm doing this and i'm building i'm building i'm building and they never get to what the church was set up to be way back when the b part and and here's the dangerous thing with that not only does the B give it, it gives a purpose. But if in fact, let me say this, if in fact you're finding your faith is a little bit cold, is a little bit stale, it's a little bit struggling, it may be that you've fallen prey to what is normal in Christendom to just live in the A, just live in the building. My faith is nothing but the building. Could it be that the reason why so many young people are walking away from the church, capital C, today is because they're just tired of the busyness and the, the activity and the superficiality and just the, the, the fighting and the, you know, just, just because they don't have, they've never had the B. They've never seen it operate before. The A is the building externally. And before we diss it too much, you need to know it's there. We need to be a part building Ezra 1 through 16. They're there. We need to be a part of that. Um, but it's secondary to the B. So here's the question. How do you grow your heart? Listen, you know, one of the letters that came in this week with the, uh, one of the emails that came in through Eat This Book, uh, one of our Eat This Book people said, I have immensely enjoyed the Eat This Book project at FAC. But when I first heard about it, I was less than excited because I enjoyed the 48-week sermon series topics. The thought of a whole year going through the Bible sounded dull to me. The fact that it sounded dull to me was a bit of an alarm to me. It was a wake-up call that I wasn't enjoying God's Word. I had fallen out of the habit of daily reading for quite some time. I was busy doing a lot of good and even holy things like going to church, going to Sunday school and small group, homeschooling, praying throughout the days, reading the Bible here and there. But I was not carving out a set time of reading, studying, and prayer alone and quiet with God. I, I made my excuses and they sounded reasonable enough after all. I had certainly read through the Bible before in my life and I was a definite believer, but I was a distracted believer. She was living in the A. And I just, are you living in the A? Is that your faith? Because if it is, you're missing what it's all, all about. We can build the outside, the external. And if we fail to build the internal, we failed. So how, how do you build your heart? Oh, open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah 8. What a key 
key passage. You know, there haven't been too many passages. Nehemiah 8, Ezra 7 that have uh, shaped, I think, my own um, walk with the Lord. There's no, they have done more than any other, I think. Nehemiah 8. You know, it, it's interesting. Our key verse for eat this book is uh, Jeremiah 15, right, where he says, your word was found and I did eat it, and it became for me a joy in my heart's delight because I'm called by your name. And I think if we're honest with each other, We'd say, you know, it's not always a joy and a delight. Uh, not sometimes, most of the time, it's not. Well, why is that so? Well, this is, I think we can find the solution here. Nehemiah chapter 8. So just a few days after they completed the wall around Jerusalem, security for God's people, security for the temple. It says, all the, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. That's the Torah. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's not a book like this, you know, with the binding and stuff. That didn't come out until like 200 AD. And so this would have been scrolls that they would have brought out. It's also important that all the people, this was their idea. This wasn't the leadership's idea. It wasn't somebody who's got this hankering to, to preach, let me do this. No, 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 the people, this was their idea. They had a thirst for God's word. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women. Notice who's there, right? Not just the elite, not just the men, not just the adults, men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. The kids, if the kids can understand. They were there. They They were in on this on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. That's like five hours. That's a preacher's dream, man. Five hours. How about a five-hour sermon, man? Amen? Yeah, that's what I thought. Right. But that, they, they were into this. And what's fascinating to me is, is they were at the water gate. You know, they didn't read God's word here in the temple precinct. You would expect that. It's the temples where they should be. No, 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 no. Out in a part of the city where they conducted life, where they went to school, where they did their business, where they had their relationships, where life got messy. That's where God's word needs to be, not just in church. And that's, that was there at the, at the water gate. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Unless in your think a five-hour message would drive anyone batty. These guys were all bored to tears. We're sure of it. It says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, Ezra must have been an incredible communicator. He could preach for five hours, and these folk are all still glued with them. They're loving this. That's amazing, right? And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. This wasn't just a spontaneous thing. It was a planned thing, though the people's idea. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Mekijah, Hashem, Hananiah, Zechariah, and Meshelam on his left hand. Now, Ezra and the people had a conviction. They, they knew that the blessing of God wasn't going to come just because they built the temple and just because they built the wall and just because they organized the priesthood and just because they got their systems all in order. They knew that the blessing comes through an encounter with the living God through his word. That, that's where it comes. 
They knew something that we forget, that it's not all about the building stuff. That's, that's, that's important, but that's secondary. You build the wall, you get the security so that you can have an encounter with the living God through his word. That's, that's, the, whole, uh, that's the whole idea. And, and if, in fact, again, your faith is all living in A, Ezra 1 through 6, Nehemiah 1 through 6, that's where you're at. That's like a museum faith. Lots of artifacts, right? You've got cases with maybe awards and programming and things that you've accomplished and blah, 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 blah. But there's no life in museum faith. There's just no, no, no life there. And so they have a ceremony that they enter into in verse 5 and 6. And we're going to uh, do a little reenactment, if that's okay with y'all. And we're going to do that, but we're not going to take a vote out. We're just gonna, I'm just going to assume it's okay with y'all. And so uh, I'm going to be Ezra, and you be the congregation. And so I'll do what Ezra does, and you do what the congregation does. And it may feel just a little bit awkward at times, but it will. Just, let's, it's just acting, so we're okay, right? Uh, verse 5 says that Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. This is God's word. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above the people, he was on the platform. Uh, so you guys in the balcony just have to pretend here. Uh, and as he opened it, all the people stood. That's your cue. Stood, 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 right, good, good. And Ezra blessed the Lord. He would have blessed the Lord, thanking God for giving his word. And when it was done, the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's a little work, that's all right, we're not charismatic or anything, but that's gonna, that'll work for us right now. Um, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They actually went on the ground, you don't have to do that, but you can sit down. Um, how'd that feel? The hands thing, I saw some of you guys. <clears throat> yeah, 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 we just ruined a lot of, uh, you know, some Baptist trains, trains traditions there I got it though we're all right but let's look at that just a little bit more closely because when Ezra opened the book the people stood when I was younger my tradition in my church is we had Bible reading every Sunday and when we did all the people stood and the reason why we did that wasn't just tradition we did it because it was a sign of honoring God's word it's like when uh, a lady was to walk into the room or an elderly person was to walk in the room, you would stand, it was manners way back when, you would stand as a sign of, of honor, as a sign of honor. So it was, it was honoring. Now sometimes we forget, this is what the problem is, we forget what the Bible is. And so we forget where our Bible is. Yeah, is it in the card? I leave it at the Y. Is it, uh, my, my kid's using it as a doorstop. Who knows? I'll find it in a month. It doesn't matter. These guys knew where their Bible was. You know where their Bible was? It was in a big gold box that, that, that was ornately designed, that had poles in it, that you had to be careful how, how you carried it. It had a special top on it. And, and they knew where their Bible was. It was very important to them. And a couple of reasons why it, it was, because God himself said regarding the, the box with the Bible in it in the top, he said, I will meet you there. God meets us through his word. And so the Jewish people, man, this is this word, it's a powerful thing. That's a, that's a powerful thing. 
The God's word was synonymous with his presence. It was synonymous with his desire to meet with, with them. Of all the people in the world, you want to meet with me, God. It was, it was synonymous in some sense of God. You know, I, I served in a liberal church at one point. The church was not liberal. The church was great. But the denomination it was a part of was very, it was just a mess and a half. And one of the people uh, in that denomination who was speaking in this area it was, uh, said, you know, the problem with you evangelicals is you have a love affair with a book. It's derogatory towards the Bible. I wasn't in a position to say anything, but if I was, I'd have said that's absolutely right. Myself and the psalmist who said, oh, how I love your law is my meditation day and night. Now, when I dated... Uh, there's no such thing as email. And so Teresa would send me a, a handwritten letter, real letter in paper. When you opened it, I read that over and over and over again. I wasn't stupid. I knew this letter was not Teresa, but it was an extension of Teresa. It was the closest thing I had to her. It meant so much to me because it was her heart to me. And what she was saying, she cared and thought I was something special. I, I loved this. I didn't treat it lightly. I knew exactly where I put it. And if the, the, the apartment I was in ever caught on fire, he had figured this out. I was going to the front, my top drawer. My letters were coming with me. We were gone. Because... I loved her because they were love letters from her to me. This, 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 these guys knew. Sometimes when we go sit down to God's word, we forget what it is. Let me just read you this. I don't have this on the screen. First Thessalonians, though. Chapter 2, verse 13. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, obviously. And he says this. And we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Sometimes we forget that this really is the word of God, that God said, I will meet you here. That God, this is synonymous of God's desiring a relationship with me. And so, so uh, he would open the book, the people would stand. Then Ezra would bless the Lord. Jewish tradition, the blessing was simply a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving. God, why in the world would you give us your word? Why, why do you want relationship with me? What have, thank you. Just thank, I don't deserve this. We don't, this was the blessing. And so when the people would say, amen, amen, what amen means is, yeah, what he said. It means, it means, yes, truly, that's right, that's, that's me. Not just what I'm saying, but what's in my heart. Yes, yes, I don't deserve this. Yes, you've given me this. It's, it's thanksgiving. You, you understand that God, what God's word is. You, you, you're thankful for it. It's not a burden. It's not a hassle. It's, oh, I guess I better do this. It's, it's, it's thankfulness for God's word. Lifting up their hands. You know, when I had, uh, my kids were little. I had two crawlers and two scooters. And when I would come home, they would hear me come in. And they would either crawl around, or they would scoot up, and they would turn the, the corner, and then uh, they would either sit back, if they were the crawler, and they all did the exact same thing. Right, right? Remember this? How wonderful. What a wonderful, wonderful era. Wonderful. And are they saying, please give me money? Please give me the car keys. Please, please, please you know, take care of your, your mother, your, your wife. She's been after me all day. No, they're not saying. They, they're, all they want is you, right? All they're saying is, I just love you. I want to know you love me. I just want you to hold me. That's all they're saying. 
If you've gone to a third world uh, country, not an international traveler per se, been a little bit, and uh, you see, you don't even have to go to third world. This is the United States, where you uh, see people who are begging on the street, and when you pass by, what they're saying is, I have nothing. I think you have something that I need, that I, could you please, I don't deserve, would you help me? Raised hands, it's very symbolic, was a, a sign of expectation. Lord, I, I, I need you. I could have my arms all around my stuff. No, my stuff is, I just need you. I, I just, just want you. It's, it's an expectation. You know, when we go to God's word, here's the deal. Do we go with an expectation that he will meet us? If we have no expectation that he's going to meet us, if we have no understanding, belief, or remembrance that even this is God's word, we have no thankfulness in our heart, what are we expecting to happen when we're in his word? I mean, if we're just thinking it's going to be really cool literature, we're going to, we're going to want to trade it in for a Gresham novel because it's just not along those lines. But when we realize this is his word, and this is, this is where he will meet me, and, and I'm expecting him to do so, Massive, massive shifts, massive changes. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's just humility. God, it's not, I'm not here with my list for all the stuff you need to do to make my agenda work, to make my life happy. It's not about my, my values and my priorities. It's just whatever you have for me. That's, that's the humility side. And you notice that they do all this before any scriptures even read. He opens the book, they all stand. Then he gives a blessing. They say, amen, amen. Their hands are up. Then they're down worshiping. Before any scripture's read, you know, this will, this has, for me personally, I'll speak for myself, of any, this has altered my own time in God's word more than anything else ever. So let me encourage you in this line. Before you open God's word, before you read, in your room, maybe close and lock the door, get down on your knees, by the side of the bed, sign of humility. Maybe even raise your hands. And just say, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. You know what's coming at me today. I don't know. And I, 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 I need you to feed me. Lord, there's a lot of junk out there that I can love. I want to just love you. Would you help me to see you in your word this morning, please? If you go down that road consistently and sincerely, there will be some shifts. Your time in God's word is not going to be, let me just read this and get this done. You will end up, because he said, there I will meet with you. You will encounter God in in time, certainly. So it says that uh, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Sebatha, Hadatha, Messiah, Kalita, Ezariah, Jezebel, Hanan, Palia, the Levites. Now, uh, keep in mind that for these folk and for their families, this was just a major honor that their names were, were listed here. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is like the first life group system you've got going on in in, in the Bible. The people are there, these teachers of the the law, they scatter through the big crowd of people, and they find little enclaves of people. Do you understand what this guy's saying? Do you understand this portion of of the, the word? And their commitment is to help them understand. This is what a preacher's supposed to be. This is what teachers of God's word, 
They're not to, to entertain. They're not to make people feel anything per se. It's to help them understand what God's word says. That's, that's the goal. That's the deal. Not to get my agenda thing through. Two, two pieces. Very, very important. Help them understand what God's word means. It's the accuracy. Not just taking scripture out of its context. What God means. Uh, what did the Holy Spirit want this text to say to these people when he sent it out? What was Paul thinking when he put that out? What was Jesus going through his mind when he sent that out? That's God's word. Not just the, the words on a sheet of paper. That, that idea is, is God's word. So figure out exactly what it means. Then second question is, what does it mean for me? If you just go what it means and you never get to this point, the application part, it's just like a verbal commentary. They can get that online. Forget that. You're wasting time. If you just get over here, what's it mean for me without ascertaining what it really means? All kinds of cults and scripture twisting, all kinds of bad stuff happens. You need to understand what it means. Then what does it mean for me? That's what the people are doing here. That's what, the way God set it up. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then they said to them, Go your way. Oh, let's leave it there for now. The people crying. Something happened in their hearts. If you think about the scripture, it is a tragic story, isn't it? It's a story of God reaching out to mankind. And God gives, and mankind messes it up. And God gives again, and mankind messes it up again. And, and, and God reaches out, and mankind spurns him. And God, God blesses him all the same, and then mankind tramples God. That's the story of Scripture. And when you, you look at it, you see yourself. You know, the world's not a good mirror for who we really are. And our culture is not a good mirror for who we really are. But as we look at scripture, you know, the more you grow, I think this is great about the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul's last uh, book that he wrote, 2 Timothy, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And you think, for crying out loud, Paul, you know, you'd think you'd have grown by now a little bit, right? You know, what is a chief of sinners? But the more you're in, the more you understand how far you fall. How far short that you, you are. Now, there are people I know, I know who say, you know what, that's what I hate about religion. Because it's just trying to make people feel bad about themselves, you know, and cry and feel bad and they want to use it to control. And, you know, if, if you go to the doctor and he gives you a diagnosis, it's a fatal diagnosis, you know what, you're going to do it when odds are high. That you will be there one day, your spouse will be one day, your kids, your grandkids, they're going to go through that. And when that happens, please know that the doctor's goal is not to try to make you feel bad or to make you feel good. It's not his, he doesn't, she, he or she do not care about that. Their job is to, to accurately figure out what, what reality is in, in your body and, and communicate that to you. That, that's, that's the deal. We don't... Well, Spiritual reality is hard to see when we're looking at this world, but when we look at God's word, we say, oh, okay, I see it. And so we can be, proper response is a broken heart. But then they said this, it's interesting, verse 10. Go your way, eat and drink sweet wine. 
Party, you guys, party. And now if you're Presbyterian there, you'll say amen, right? And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. It's a proper response to have the tears. It's a proper response to be broken, but it's not the final response. There's, there's some of, sometimes, and it's easy to live in that response of tears. Reality is this, though. When I do, what I'm doing is I'm focusing on my brokenness, not his faithfulness. I, I'm, I'm focusing on my performance, not, not his. And, and the joy of me is my strength. When I'm doing well and I'm on top of the heap and I'm knocking it out of the park and, and I, at least I think I am and I'm victorious over some sin. You know what? Joy of me is my strength. I'm doing, but you know, if I trip and fall, oh man, life is horrific. It's horrible. Woe is me. Woe is everybody. Life is awful. And I don't start feeling good about anything again until I'm back up. Then you know what? Life is going well again. But you know, as soon as I fall back down again, life is awful again. Joy of me is my strength. And when we get into to God's word, we realize that none of us are really at the top anyway, ever. But it's his grace, not my performance. And so that's why he can say, even tears over your brokenness is, is, is good, but it can't stop there. Some of us, we've been stuck there. We're living our life. The joy of me is my strength. No, no. You have to, to go and celebrate God's grace, God's faithfulness, God's power. That's what, what this is all, all about. And so the people enjoy, they, 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 they move that direction, they've come full circle. God's word has done what it's supposed to do. This uh, person who, who uh, wrote to me this week, she says, uh, I was a believer, but I was a distracted believer. When the, uh, then I prayed to God to give me a hunger for his word. When Eat This Book began in the new year, I decided to begin with the locale plan to ease my way into it. I took a few weeks to begin and realized I had missed Genesis. I felt fairly familiar with that book, however, so I didn't let it deter me, and I picked up an exodus. I began to enjoy the historical narrative again. I loved seeing Jesus in the Old Testament and God's mighty acts on display as he brought his people out of Egypt. The sermons were a bit further ahead than I was reading, and all of a sudden, people were proudly displaying their conquest of Leviticus. I wanted a sticker, too. What I really desired, though, was to go deeper and join with the church body in this quest, so I set aside my locale menu, and I picked up the full Bible reading plan. I was still in Exodus, and the new plan was halfway through Deuteronomy. I dove right in and told myself I could catch up with Leviticus and Numbers later. Uh, I was hesitant because I like doing things whole and well, and this felt like cheating, but I dove in anyway, and I haven't missed a day since. The Lord has given me such a hunger for his word through this project in the accompanying sermon series. I'm so thankful for that answered prayer. Now it seems to me that a year is simply not enough. I've had a personal great awakening in my spirit, and I'm so incredibly thankful. I would encourage anyone who has not yet joined in the Eat This Book reading plan to listen to this counsel. Pray earnestly for a hunger from the Holy Spirit. And jump right in, right now, and join the great feast. Couldn't have said that better. What a great plan. I spent a lot of years as a Christian living in Ezra, 
Nehemiah 1 through 6. Doing, 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 doing. My propensity is to gravitate that direction. Uh, And when you do, all you do is get tired. You miss out on what it's all about. So the challenge, as for Nehemiah, for you and for me, is to encounter the living God through his word. And do the stuff we're supposed to do it, but not forget to encounter the living God through his word. Would you pray with me?